Listener supported. WNYC Studios. From WNYC Studios, I'm Brian Lehrer. This is my Daily Politics Podcast. It's Monday, July 24th. Our first guest for this week is Maya Wiley. It's been a couple of years since she was on, not since she was running in the New York City Democratic mayoral primary in 2021, which Eric Adams eventually won, of course, in the ranked choice voting system. Those of you who watch MSNBC have certainly seen Maya Wiley doing legal analysis there. And last week, she had a very unusual role to play in American politics when the Republicans in the House of Representatives called a hearing to give Robert Kennedy Jr. a platform for his vaccine and other conspiracy theories. Did you see coverage of that? Including ones that are widely considered anti-Semitic and anti-Asian hate speech about COVID-19. The Democrats chose Maya Wiley to be their main counter witness. So we'll debrief her on that strange scene a little bit and talk also about Maya's actual day job these days as president and CEO of the Leadership Conference on Civil and Human Rights. Maya, always good to have you. It's been a minute, like I said, so welcome back to WNYC. Well, thank you, Brian. It's always wonderful to be on with you. Well, let's start with your unusual appearance on Capitol Hill last week. What we know is that the Republican House wanted to give a boost to RFK Jr.'s profile because he's the best-known challenger in the Democratic presidential primary against President Biden. But why did the Democrats call you in that same hearing? Well, I was asked to come, frankly, and share some truth, both about what was happening with misinformation, what the harms were, uh, what we need to be concerned about, and frankly, um, why it is so critically important that we all pay attention to the truth and why it matters to all of us. And I was privileged to have the opportunity to play that role. Um, My sense from the coverage of the hearing was that the Democrats on the committee didn't want to dignify Kennedy's evidence-free conspiracy theories by engaging directly on the content. And so they had you there to talk about the repeated acts of bigotry contained in some of his remarks, among for other reasons. Would, Would that be an accurate take? Well, I would say the take is that they they actually did take some of this content on quite directly. I I mean, I think the point was to understand the harms um, and hopefully have an uh, opportunity to really talk about what we should be concerned about. And to the extent necessary, also explain the law, because, you know, part of the the myth and disinformation related to whether or not there is censorship happening on these platforms completely misunderstands the law. And actually what was happening here, which is really a conversation about whether social media platforms, private companies that have the lawful right to decide what content is on their sites, that have policies that say, we, we will take action if you share false, false information about vaccines in the context of a pandemic, um, hate, hate that is uh, has the potential to harass or do harm to others, and that the issue is compliance with their own policies. Um, so that was really something that was important that we didn't, frankly, get to enough. Yeah, and that was officially um, the point of the hearing was to talk about alleged censor- censorship against conservatives, I think was that 
was sort of the, you know, their watchword. Um, again, by the by the some of the social media platforms, uh, and they were using Kennedy as an example of somebody who allegedly has been censored because his views were not politically correct. And I, I want to talk more about what RFK said in a minute, but that's a tough call, right, for a media show, even this one, um, and, and social media platforms, because you want to give as wide a range as possible to different opinions on issues. And you don't want to censor people because they have different points of view on contentious issues of the day. But by the same token, we have a responsibility not to spread things that are patently false. And sometimes there's a gray area there. So there's a sometimes tough call for whether you're Twitter or Facebook or anyone else, right? Absolutely. And look, everything you said were the very legitimate issues that should have been discussed in that hearing. It's just not what we were discussing. And that's the problem. Because the reality is, let's, let's start with the whole, the, frankly, what is um, unsubstantiated and, frankly, evidence against the the point of view that says conservative voices are being silenced on social media platforms. That in and of itself has been, frankly, uh, New York University Stern School has a report in 2021 that was quite a deep report that showed that, if anything, the algorithms that social media platforms are using actually elevate some extremist content over others. We've seen in the civil rights content, we've seen, you know, the actually some of the banning inappropriately of content that has to do with racial justice and racial issues. So the reality is these platforms have algorithms and those algorithms function a certain way, but it has certainly not functioned to reduce the voice of conservatives because they're conservative or of extremist content. In contrary, the opposite as well as the fact that there, there simply has been no study to show that there has been any, any ideological removal of content. And I just want to point to this because it was such a glaring example. You know, one of the things that, um, that sadly Robert F. Kennedy Jr. had posted was a um, tweet that said Hank Aaron died of his death was suspicious, right? The thing is, Twitter didn't even take down that tweet. I would argue that was a violation of their own social media policy, but it didn't even come down. And yet it showed up as part of the argument that somehow there was there was actual ideological, you know, discrimination against content. Uh, Well, he was he was asserting it was suspicious that he might have died as as uh, in reaction to a covid vaccine. Right. Yeah, right. But the medical examiner had already publicly stated that there were not suspicious causes to the death. So it was actually counterfactual. And it went exactly to this point about uh, the policies of social media con that said explicitly uh, that they would take down content that was mis or disinformation about the efficacy of vaccines. And, you know, frankly, one of the things that Robert F. Kennedy Jr. said in that hearing, he said, I've never been anti-vax. And then, you know, you had outlets like MSNBC fact-checking that the beat put out on Instagram showing a video clip of him doing exactly the opposite of what what he stated in that hearing, which he's never done. And in fact, the Children's Health Defense, which is the organization that he helped found and draws a paycheck from, 
is explicitly, overtly, and constantly anti-vaccine. Now, let's be clear. You can be anti You can take a position on being anti-vaccine. The question is whether you're providing content that does not comport with the science. That's what the social media platforms have to navigate. And often that that stays up. And let me point one other thing out to you, Brian, which, you know, I find is part of the hypocrisy of the of the entire proceeding is that, you know, the question is right to say there's gray area. You're right to say that it's actually really hard work. And one of the things we've been concerned about is that social media platforms have been, frankly, shrinking their trust and safety staff and divisions. Twitter cut it 80 percent. Those are the people who help try to to monitor and navigate this. We should all have a shared interest in making sure they're not doing that. But if you look at what Donald Trump did in May of 2020, in May of 2020, he put an absolutely unsubstantiated tweet out that said there is zero, zero likelihood that uh, you could have mail-in balloting that wasn't fraudulent. This was May of 2020. There is reams, reams of research that shows that that is not true. Twitter then puts a fact check label on it. There's simply no politician, elected official, or candidate for office that doesn't get fact checked by news media outlets, for example. Uh, they put a fact check, they didn't take the tweet down. They put, we, we, you could argue that that violated their policy, but what they did is they put a fact check label on it. He then takes to Twitter to threaten to bring the entire power of the federal government down on Twitter and even potentially close them down. Now, if if in this hearing there was a real honest concern, if any of these electors had said, we think that's government being coercive and trying to si- si- silence social media platforms for, for, for complying with their own policies, we would have been having a more honest conversation. Uh, that is not the conversation we were having. We were not pointing to to all the various um, ways in which we've had plenty of reason to be concerned, even about protecting uh, truthful information about our elections and and the and and what is in fact to be concerned about in protecting our democratic process and what is fictitious. Let's let's talk for a minute about the irony of the son of the civil and human rights champion, the late RFK Senior engaging in some of the kinds of speech that he has. A recent example is that he was caught on tape in a video from a private event of some kind, but then this was published by the New York Post. On the video, Kennedy says about the COVID virus, quote, there is an argument that it is ethnically targeted. COVID-19 attacks certain races disproportionately. COVID-19 is targeted to attack Caucasians and black people. The people who are most immune are Ashkenazi Jews and Chinese, unquote, from RFK Jr. on that video published by The Post. So I, I don't know if that's more offensive against the unnamed scientist who allegedly created COVID with specific ethnic targets in mind, or more bigoted against Jews and Chinese people who are historically targeted by bigots as trying to control everybody. How did you hear that? I heard it as a very disturbing example of taking stereotypical tropes, not only driving a conspiracy theory, but a racialized uh, and anti-Semitic, one that has racialized and anti-Semitic roots. Um, so there's no question that this, this notion of the, 
I don't, I don't even really like to repeat it too much because, frankly, we had Robert Bowers, who was just being sentenced last week at the same time we were having this hearing, who has killed, killed 11 people, wounded six others because they were Jewish, because he was anti-Semite. Uh, and that he, these, these are the kinds of theories that people like Robert Bowers have been consuming and sharing, which is the suggestion that there's some you know, grand conspiracy cabal of people because they're Jewish uh, who are somehow either immune. And so the subtext, the subtext, I'm not going to say what was in Robert F. Kennedy's mind when he shared this incredible misinformation, because there's zero evidence of, of, of what he stated in terms of weaponization of the pandemic. But it was also picking up a trope that could lead. We saw in New York, you know, Brian, you and I, Sadly, and so many New Yorkers, the violent attacks on people who were Asian solely because they were Asian when Donald Trump had started calling it the Chinese flu, right? And there was a suggestion that somehow there were people to blame. And this actually played into that. Whether or not he intended it, I cannot say. I can only say the work that it does, both in terms of giving it a platform, giving it any credibility, and, and, and watching the work that organized hate groups. And we've seen a rise. Folks like the Proud Boys have attracted more adherence since January 6th. And this is the kind of thing that is actively happening. Um, so we all have to be very responsible uh, about what we say, how we try to learn and understand facts, and how we separate out fiction, making sure we are not racializing uh, or otherwise othering people. Um, because, and, and I'm going to say this as someone who is black, you know, there is a reason that many more black people died, and Latinos, and people who are Na Native American, and people Anyone who was in overcrowded housing, uh, frankly, you know, in, in some of the Orthodox and Hasidic communities in New York, uh, because of the overcrowded housing, all the things that lead this, what we call the social determinants of health, uh, the ways in which we live or what access to health care we have or don't, or whether we're in a job where we're more likely to have to be a first responder or an essential worker and therefore are more exposed to the spread of an airborne virus. Like these are the things we need to be talking about. So this is a, not only a distraction and misinformation, it's dangerous. And previously when the COVID vaccine and vaccine mandates um, were enforced, when the vaccine was new for entry to some places, when the virus was still raging at the levels that it was at that time, Kennedy said, diminishing the Holocaust, even in Hitler's Germany, you could cross the Alps to Switzerland. You could hide in an attic like Anne Frank did. And when he was criticized for that, he tweeted um, and wrote an apology. And I'm going to read a little bit of this because of another offense that's baked into the apology. He said, I apologize for my reference to Anne Frank, especially to families that suffered the Holocaust horrors. My intention was to use examples of past barbarism to show the perils from new technologies of control. So even in that apology with respect to the Holocaust, there was his conspiracy calling the COVID vaccine a technology of control rather than a public health yeah. tool. And we see, of course, the much lower death and hospitalization rates among vaccinated people who get COVID. But to him, it was essentially a technology of control. 
Yeah. So it was, first of all, I just have to say how offensive that's no one who is sensitive to the devastation of the the Holocaust. And my, I will, my, my, my partner, the father, my children, my, my kids, grandmother is a Holocaust survivor. Her, their grand, great grandfather was in Sachsenhausen. There's simply no way you can hear. No one could even lightheartedly make that comparison to suggest that Anne Frank, you know, had some, some privilege or opportunity. Um, So I just want to say that. But I think to your point, which is absolutely accurate, this is the same man who in that congressional hearing yesterday absolutely lied when he said, I've never been anti-vax. And that's yet another example. There's an episode of the sitcom The Mindy Project, Mindy Kaling, where her character is a Mm -hmm. new mom about to get her baby his routine shots. But she has a babysitter in one episode who's anti-vax. And the babysitter says something like, you're doing business with Big Pharma? And Mindy says, yes, I don't want to do business with Big Polio or Big Mumps. Very very funny, but it made the point, right? Right. Right. The Washington Post columnist Philip Bunt this weekend, after watching or hearing, raised the conundrum of how the Democrats and the media should respond to Kennedy being so out there with his views but also being well-known and with his pedigree, talk about legacy admissions, right? And with him getting 20% or so in some Democratic primary polls, Bump wrote this, quote, what is it about Kennedy that demands a response at all? Is it his name? Because he's getting more than 0% in polls? Is it simply that Kennedy affords Democrats an opportunity to reinforce who they are relative to what he presents? Or is it also that the party has seen what happens if you don't challenge the fringe assertions of a long-shot celebrity candidate for the presidency? Unquote. That from Philip Bump. And that last reference, obviously, to Trump and the Republican lack of condemnation for the last seven years, no matter what he does— and, and it is a conundrum, right? It's a conundrum for us. We had the conversation among my team whether to even do this segment with you at all, because mm. why give oxygen to RFK Jr. at all? So the question is, yeah. you know, and we came down on the side of accountability, and you have to call out uh, damaging conspiracy theories and hate speech if they're coming from prominent enough places to have an effect if they're not challenged. That's where we came down. That might be wrong. Uh, But what do you think the right balance is between just not giving discredited ideas oxygen versus making sure to denounce things that are counterfactual from prominent figures that are in circulation so they don't take hold more in the population? Well, I, I think, and I share, you know, the complexity of this. And I have myself, for example, uh, not retweeted things that I could attack on social media because I didn't want to give it oxygen. And I think we have to make that judgment one case at a time, right? When is it giving it oxygen versus absolutely necessary because it's already getting oxygen? And that really is the point about this congressional hearing that is about weaponization of the government, but an example of weaponizing uh, Congress uh, by giving not not just him, but also a, a reporter at Breitbart News, you know, all these opportunities uh, to essentially reassert conspiracy theories uh, and conspiracy theories that are not only dangerous, they actually don't have any real deep newsworthiness other than the fact <laughs> that the hearing was happening. 
Um, the reason I showed up and came was because the hearing was going to happen whether I came or not. The news cameras were going to be there whether I came or not. And so it was important. And that's why I expressed gratitude for the opportunity to come there to try to insert into the proceedings both fact, but also a reminder of what we should be talking about. We should be talking about what do we do with the fact that we've had this historic rise in anti-Semitism? Well, what, what does that mean about the social media platforms and what government does and does not do in balance of all of our constitutional rights? How do we better understand as a society how we live together? How do we understand how racism is working right now in society when we're sitting here talking about censorship? And what does the governor of Florida do? Try to indoctrinate students about slavery having brought some benefits to black people. I mean, that's what that's what's happening mm. in our country right now. That's what we need to be talking about. And some and so sometimes we have to use the platform, sadly, that is before us, because to your point, Brian, sometimes you have to have a counterweight. Maya Wiley, now president and CEO of the Leadership Conference on Civil and Human Rights. Good to talk to you again. Thank you very much for coming on. Thank you for having me, Brian. Appreciate it. Brian Lehrer, A Daily Politics Podcast, is an excerpt from my live daily radio show, The Brian Lehrer Show, on WNYC Radio, 10 a.m. to noon Eastern Time, if you want to listen live at WNYC.org. Thanks for listening today. Talk to you next time.